0: We are studying the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, basically paragraph by paragraph. And in the last passage, we studied instruction to flee from sexual immorality. That instruction on fleeing from sexual immorality ended with a positive instruction. I want you to look in chapter 6 at the second half of verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19b... You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The positive side of the instruction is glorify God in your body. The negative was flee from sexual immorality. The positive is glorify God in your body. And now in our text, the Apostle Paul will tell married couples to do that very thing in their marriage relationship, to glorify God with their bodies. Our text is about sex in marriage. Now, the world has many misunderstandings of the Bible. It used to be commonly said, God helps those who help themselves. And many people thought that this came from the Bible, but it is nowhere found in the Bible. Many have misquoted the Bible as saying money is the root of all evil but the Bible doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. There have been many misunderstandings um, amongst those of the world uh, regarding the teaching of the Bible. Now today what we find is not so much misunderstanding of the Bible but ignorance of the Bible. As you talk to unbelievers at work, uh, unbelievers who live on on your street, uh, what we are finding much more now is ignorance of the Bible altogether. However, a common misunderstanding of the Bible that I believe persists today is that the Bible has nothing good to say about sex other than what it says about sex in relation to procreation. People wrongly think That the Bible speaks of sex as something dirty. Something to be avoided. The truth of the matter is that the Bible speaks of sex as a blessing from God. Something that was included in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31. When we read, God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. Sex as God created it, as God designed it, is very good along with the rest of His creation. The Bible speaks strongly against perversions of sex, as we saw last week, and it also speaks strongly in favor of sex, when it is in its rightful place, marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, we, we see that the Bible speaks strongly in favor of sex, in its rightful place, We see this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And today we come to the chief New Testament passage on this. It is important for you uh, to understand this passage uh, no matter where you are at in life. Uh, You may be single and uh, possibly uh, getting married in the future. And if that is the case, that you are single and may get married in the future, then this verse or this passage is part of your preparation for marriage. Part of your preparation, you need to understand what this passage teaches. So that when you do get married, you'll be able to glorify God in your marriage. Some of you may be single and have no interest in marriage. You do not expect that you will ever be married. This is also important for you to understand. In order to have a biblical worldview, you need to understand what this passage teaches. We need to have a biblical view of all things, including sex, even if we will never get married. And for those of you who are married, understand this passage gives important instructions to you. Wherever you are at in life, this is an important passage to understand. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-5. through 5. Please stand in honor of the Word of God, if you are able. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This text teaches three truths about sex in marriage in order that those who are married would glorify God in their sexual relationship. Three truths about sex in marriage in order that those who are married would glorify God in their sexual relationship. The first truth that we see is that sex in marriage is a protection. Sex in marriage is a protection. Look closely at verse 1 now concerning the matters about which you wrote. In the previous chapters, Paul responded to reports he had received about the church in Corinth. Go back to chapter 1, verse 11, where we see that. Chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, "...for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers." And Paul proceeded to respond in this letter uh, to what he had been informed of regarding the church in Corinth. So he has been, so far in this letter, responding to reports he received about the church. Now, when we come to chapter 7, verse 1... Uh, Paul begins to respond to various matters that the Corinthians mentioned in a letter that they wrote to him. So he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now, Paul shifts from one of these matters to another down in chapter, further on in this chapter, in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed. So, Earlier in chapter 7, he has been addressing something that was in the letter that the Corinthian church wrote to him. Now in verse 25, he shifts from one matter in the letter to another matter, now concerning the betrothed. Then look at chapter 8, verse 1, Well, he will shift again. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Something else that they brought up in the letter that they sent to him. So he's moving through different matters that they wrote about in their letter, responding to them. Now, each time, Paul concisely refers to something in their letter, and then he gives his response uh, to that. Now, the ESV translators interpret chapter 7, verse 1, in the same way. As referencing something in the letter from the Corinthians. Look look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Notice that that second half in the ESV is in quotation marks. So the ESV translators are interpreting the second half of verse 1 as a quotation from the letter that the corinthian church wrote to the apostle paul or if not a quotation at least a paraphrase of something that they wrote in their letter now, I, and I believe this is a correct interpretation that when paul says it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman he is referencing something that the corinthians wrote that now he wants to respond to by itself This statement is very misleading, is it not? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The Apostle Paul will majorly qualify this statement in this chapter. Now, what the statement here that Paul will qualify, literally, as the New American Standard renders it, says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. To touch a woman is a euphemism in the Bible for having sexual relations. So we have a good translation of the statement here. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what the statement means. Now there were some wrong beliefs in the Corinthian church about sex and marriage. Beliefs that were held by at least a portion of the church. An uncertainty or a wrong belief about these things is reflected in verse 28. Go down to verse 28. Paul teaches here, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Why would Paul tell them that if you marry, you have not sinned? What well, seemed to be that there were some in the church that either had an uncertainty about this or actually believed that it would be sin uh, for them to marry. And, and Paul is challenging uh, that wrong belief or he is informing them so they no longer have an uncertainty about these matters. Now, Paul will confront false teaching about these things in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Turn over to First Timothy chapter four verse three. First Timothy was written sometime after First Corinthians. In First Timothy four verse three, Paul speaks of, quote, or of those who quote, "Forbid marriage." and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What's the context? We'll go back to to verse 1. In verse 1 he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There were some who wrongly forbid marriage. There were some who who, who wrongly said that marriage is not good. Now, even though Paul confronted this false teaching about marriage, a number of people in the church through the centuries would believe similar things to the false teaching that Paul uh, rejects here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. John Chrysostom, who was one of the church fathers, who is really our first example in church history of faithful expository preaching, in spite of his faithfulness with many passages, John Chrysostom said, quote, Virginity stands as far above marriage as the heavens stand above the earth. That's not biblical. Another church father, Jerome, said, All those who have not remained virgins, following the pattern of the pure chastity of angels and that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, are polluted. All who have not remained virgins are polluted. That's not biblical. Augustine, another church father, taught that marriage is not a good, but it is a good in comparison with fornication. He said total abstinence from sexual relations is an, quote, angelic exercise. That's not biblical. The false teaching that Paul opposes here in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, is the teaching that forbids marriage and denies the goodness of it. And a similar thought is expressed in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Come back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. A similar idea is expressed here. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Something that was in the letter that was written to Paul. And Paul cannot let this statement stand. He has to teach the truth about these matters so that we as believers will walk in the truth. Let's see Paul's teaching in our passage. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Now note the terminology of Having his own wife. The wording of a man having a woman or a woman having a man sometimes in the Bible is another euphemism for sexual relations. We saw one euphemism back in verse 1, the literal rendering to touch a woman. Here's another euphemism in the Bible. The Bible often will speak of sexual relations between a husband and a wife using euphemisms. And so we have it here. Uh, This euphemism was used back in chapter 5, verse 1, to refer to sexual relations. Look back at chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. In other words, a man is having sexual relations with his father's wife. All right, and this is the case in our text in chapter 7, verse 2. This idea of a man having his wife is the idea of having sexual relations with her. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is not saying in verse 2 that everyone should get married. Because look at what he will say in verse 7. And understand that Paul is single. Paul's not married. He says in verse 7, "...I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am." And Paul will elaborate upon that in this chapter. All right? So he will give reasons uh, that make singleness beneficial. We'll talk about when you're single, you, you can show undivided devotion to the Lord in a way that a married person cannot. Right. So, certainly in verse 2, Paul is not saying that everyone should get married. Paul is, in verse 2, saying that everyone who is married should have sexual relations with their spouse. But that is not all he is saying. He speaks here in verse 2 of sexual relations and marriage being a protection from sexual immorality. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, in this chapter, Paul is not teaching an overview of everything that we need to know about marriage and sex. He is correcting specific misunderstandings and or answering specific questions about marriage and sex. There is certainly more to sex in marriage than it being a protection against sexual immorality. But this is something that the Corinthian church needed to hear. One of multiple reasons why a married couple should have sex regularly is to avoid temptation to sexual immorality. Temptation to have sex outside of marriage. And along with that, uh, to avoid temptation to lust. Because Jesus says that just as adultery is sin, so lust in the heart is sin against God. And so a reason why a husband and wife are to regularly have sex together is to avoid temptations towards sexual immorality outwardly, as well as in the heart. Now, the Apostle Paul just taught in chapter 6 why the Christian must flee from sexual immorality. And now he speaks of a protection against sexual immorality. Now, our text does not mean that sex in marriage is foolproof protection against the sin of sexual immorality. Sin comes from the heart. And sex in marriage does not change the heart. After Esther and I got married, and I would be home alone and bored with my work, I formed habits of lust that I had previously overcome. By God's grace, um, at the end of high school, I overcame some habits of lust that had been deeply rooted in my life. Esther and I got married. And uh, there was those times where she would be away. I'd be home alone. I was bored with my my work. And uh, I formed again habits of lust that, by God's grace, I was able to overcome as time went on. I praise the Lord for that. But that is an example that shows sex in marriage is not foolproof protection from temptation of a sexual nature. Sin comes from the heart, and sex in marriage does not change the heart. The heart has to be changed. So our text does not mean that it is a foolproof protection. Secondly, our text does not mean that if a person commits adultery, their spouse is to blame because the spouse did not satisfy the person sexually. It does not mean that at all. The Bible teaches that each person is responsible for his own sin. No matter what your spouse does or does not do, God requires you to exercise self-control. You will answer to God for your sin. Blame shifting in Eden did not work. As the, woman, uh, as the man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the serpent, God held them all accountable for how... They did wrong. Blame shifting will not work in your life. You can't say, well, my spouse didn't give it to me, so I looked for it somewhere else. That doesn't work with God. God holds everyone accountable for their own sin. He requires all of us to exercise self-control, no matter what our spouse does or does not do. Thirdly, our text does not mean that singleness excuses sexual immorality. It does not mean that singleness excuses sexual immorality. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses three through five say, "For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God." Joseph was single and he fled. And if you are single, by the grace of God, you can flee from sexual immorality. Singleness does not excuse immorality. What our text does mean is that sex in marriage helps protect against sexual immorality. It helps protect against it. And when a married couple avoids sex or neglects sex, they invite temptation. That's what our text means. In the beginning, God created male and female with an internal sex drive. It it was part of God's creation which He saw as very good. Part of God's purpose for it was that men and women would get married and would have children. This is God's overarching design which is still in place. Now there is more to God's design than this, but this is an important part of it. What 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2 says is that when you are fulfilling God's purpose in creating sex and fulfilling it in a holy way, you are less prone to the to the temptation to use it in a sinful way. Well, having instructed in verse 2 that each one should have their own spouse, Paul elaborates on this in verses 3 and 4. If there is any question about what he meant in verse 2, it becomes crystal clear in verses 3 and 4, where we see that sex in marriage is about giving. This is the second truth in our text. Sex in marriage is about giving. Look look with me at verse 3. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Literally, this is, says, the husband should give what is owed to his wife, or literally, the husband should fulfill his duty to his wife. The way the ESV puts it, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. The ESV uses the word conjugal because the immediate context indicates that this is the kind of obligation in mind. The word conjugal means marital. Commentator David Garland gives the meaning of verse 3 correctly when he translates it this way, "...the husband shall fulfill his sexual obligations to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband." Notice that verse 3 requires husbands to give themselves sexually to their wives, and wives to give themselves sexually to their husbands. And the verb in this verse, give, is a present imperative. Speaking of an ongoing responsibility. The apostle says here that giving yourself sexually to your spouse is required by God. It is required of both the husband and of the wife. Paul continues in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. When you were married, you and your spouse gave your bodies to one another in a lifelong commitment. That's what Paul has in mind here. When he says to the husbands, your wife has authority over your body. And to the wife, the husband has authority over your body. He has in mind that when you were married, you and your spouse gave your bodies to one another in a lifelong commitment. You gave your spouse authority over your body. And your spouse gave you authority over their body. This is part of the marriage covenant and it's reflected in the words in Genesis 2, 24b, And they shall become one flesh. Your body is for the sexual satisfaction of your spouse for giving sexual pleasure to your spouse, and for your spouse to enjoy sexually. This mutual giving of your bodies to each other is expressed in a refrain that we find in the book of Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I want you to turn over to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is at the end of the poetic section of the Old Testament, before the prophetic Section, so before Isaiah, Song of Solomon. The message of the book of Song of Solomon is God's blessing upon marriage and sex in marriage. And the book of Song of Solomon tells married couples to enjoy sexual intimacy together as a gift from God. I want you to look in chapter 2 at verse 16 at the refrain that I I quoted earlier. In chapter 2, the bride says of her bridegroom, let me get some context here. Look at verse 16. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I want to get the context. So go back to verse 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8. To get the context. The, 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 uh, the bride is speaking here. The bride says, The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. She's speaking of the bridegroom. Go down to verse 10. The bride says, My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Now go down to verse 16. The bride says, My beloved is mine and I am his. That's a refrain in this book. My beloved is mine and I am his. We have given ourselves to each other. I have given my body to you, and you have given your body to me. We have given each other to one another. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Go to chapter 6, verse 2, where again the bride speaks of her bridegroom. Chapter 6, verse 2. The bride says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So again, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Let's keep this in mind, coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, we read again For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this does not mean that we can demand sex from our spouse. It would not be what God intended to be if it were demanded. Rather, verses 3 and 4 instruct a loving giving of ourselves to one another. Love both gives of oneself to another and delights in the Beloved. Sex is meant by God to be a deep expression of such love, a love that gives oneself to another and delights in the beloved. John MacArthur stated it well when he wrote, God created sex to be the expression and experience of love on the deepest human level and to be a beautiful and powerful bond between husband and wife." If you approach sexual relations in a selfish way, you are living contrary to the instructions and truth in our passage. Verse 3 says you have an obligation to your spouse, and that you are to give to your spouse. Verse 4 says your body is not yours, but is for the pleasure and satisfaction of your spouse. You are not to withhold sex from your spouse as a punishment, nor are you to give sex to your spouse as a reward. Rather, it is about loving one another as God has loved you. How has He loved you? Freely, graciously. And so is to be the love that is expressed between a husband and wife in sexual relations, a love that is given freely, a love that is given graciously. Sex is designed by God to be an expression of the gracious love to which you committed yourselves in the marriage covenant. When you said, to death do us part, you are committing to give a gracious love to one another. Till death do we part. It may be difficult. You may do things that I don't like. You might sin against me in some grievous ways but I am committed to you. It's a gracious love. Sex is designed by God to be an expression of that gracious love which is committed to one another in the covenant of marriage. You are not to ask your spouse to do something sexually that they do not feel comfortable doing. Rather, sexual relations are to be a loving and tender showing of affection. Now verse 4 in our text also teaches an exclusiveness in sexual relations. An exclusiveness. There is no place for a third party. Notice that in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There's no place for a third party. The wife's body belongs to the husband. The husband's body belongs to the wife. Your bodies belong exclusively to one another and are not to be shared with another. This is stated powerfully in Proverbs chapter 5. And we need to turn back to Proverbs chapter 5. The book of Proverbs was written for Solomon's sons. Not written for daughters, it's written for sons, though it applies just as much to daughters and should be certainly applied by both men and women. But he's writing it to his sons. Uh, much of chapter 5 in Proverbs is a warning against adultery. But the heart of the chapter is about sex and marriage. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. He's speaking metaphorically here of sexual relations between a husband and a wife. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, a graceful doe, Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? What we see in these verses is that a husband is to rejoice in the wife of his youth and not in another woman. That a husband is to let his wife's breasts fill him at all times with delight and never the breasts of another. That a husband is to be intoxicated always in his wife's love and never in another's love. And the reciprocal could be said about a wife. That a wife is to rejoice exclusively in her husband, being delighted exclusively by his body, being intoxicated exclusively in his love. We see the exclusiveness emphasized here. An exclusiveness that we have seen in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4. And as we look at these verses in Proverbs chapter 5, we see that clearly God designed sex not only for having children, but also for a loving bond to be regularly enjoyed together as a blessing from God. And to be enjoyed exclusively between the two of you. Adultery is sinful. And it is also sinful to use pornography in your sexual relationship. Pornography would be an intruder just as a mistress would be an intruder and is absolutely forbidden by God. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's remind ourselves here of what Paul says that we're studying in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 and 4. The husband should, in verse 3, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I want you to observe the mutuality in this. The mutuality in this. We see here that sex is for the pleasure and enjoyment of both. Husband and wife. Some people wrongly view sex as the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation. And this could not be further from God's design. There is a great mutuality here. And the mutuality in verses 3 and 4 was countercultural in Paul's day. The culture of Paul's day would say the husband has authority over his wife's body, but not the reverse. The culture of Paul's day would say the wife must give to her husband his conjugal rights, but not the reverse. In this respect, the culture twisted God's design. The Bible teaches us to greatly value, respect, and honor women. We read in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, don't look down on your wife. She is an heir with you of the grace of life. Our text teaches that sex is to be mutually enjoyable to husband and wife. If routinely one spouse is not receiving pleasure and satisfaction, then something should be done to address this. Sometimes this is caused by one or both persons approaching sexual relations in a wrong way. Sometimes the husband does not exercise the necessary patience. Other times this is caused by emotional or spiritual problems in the heart of one or both persons. Sometimes one spouse does not feel accepted by the other. Or does not feel accepted by God. Sometimes there is sin that has not been confessed. Those things need to be addressed. Other times, sexual difficulties are a symptom of problems in the marriage, like unresolved conflict between the husband and the wife, or a symptom of a a lack of love and affection when not in bed. Such things need to be addressed. Sexual problems can be a reflection of a deeper problem. Such difficulties are not to be hidden; they're not to be ignored, but they should be discussed, and help should be sought if needed. Well, so far we have seen in our text that sex and marriage is a protection. We have seen it is about giving, and there's also a third truth about sex and marriage, and that it is and it is that sex and marriage is vital. It is vital. Look with me in our text at verse 5. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. The imperative in this verse is do not deprive one another. The word deprive in the original language means to take away what rightfully belongs to another. The word is usually translated into English as rob, steal, or defraud. Do not deprive one another. Remember that verse 3 speaks of sexual intimacy as something that a person owes to their spouse. And now Paul says in verse 5 that to neglect sexual intimacy in marriage is to deprive one another of something that rightfully belongs to the other. And the apostle instructs us not to do so. Quote, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. We see here that a married couple should only abstain if both husband and wife are in agreement. On doing so. Now, again, this teaching defied the cultural norms of the Greco Roman world. The cultural norm was that it only mattered what the husband thought and desired. Paul says a married couple should only abstain if both husband and wife are in agreement on doing so, and only for a limited time, he says. It must be temporary and it must not be too long. And he says, it must be for the purpose of devoting yourselves to prayer. Devoting yourselves to prayer. The Bible teaches us to have focused and extended times of prayer. Jesus, who is our example, set an example for us of extended times of prayer. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Uh, We're told, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. So Jesus had many things pressing on him. There were many people who were calling for his attention. Many people who wanted to be healed or wanted someone else to be healed. Many people who wanted to hear uh, the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus easily could have filled up every waking moment with that. But that's not what He did. He actually stole away before anyone else in the home got up. And, and He went to a desolate place. A place where there would be no distractions. And He'd spent... Extended time in prayer there with the Father. And so the disciples don't even know where they are. They have to hunt Him down to find Him. Now, was that just a one-time thing in Jesus' life? No. It was the way that He lived. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, before He calls the twelve apostles, we read, In these days He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night, he continued in prayer to God. Jesus prayed all night long on that night. Talk about un, uh, undistracted, extended time of prayer. All night, he prayed. Everybody else was asleep, but he was praying. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, Peter is in prison. The church expects that unless the Lord intervenes, Peter is going to be put to death by the authorities. He's going to be martyred. But we read in verse 6 of Acts 12 that while Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, an angel came, woke him up, released him, and brought him out of that prison. So he's sleeping. So, what, kind of, what time of day is this? This is nighttime. Now, where does Peter, Peter go in the middle of the night when he's released from prison? He goes to a house where he knew that the early church was praying. Acts 12, verse 12 says Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is the middle, middle of the night. If we had a middle of the night prayer meeting, how many would come? <laughs> middle of the night. Not just some, but many in the church were gathered together and were praying. In the middle of the night, you don't have the normal, normal pressures of life. At night, there can be undistracted, extended prayer. And that's what the church was doing. In Luke chapter five, verse 35, Jesus was questioned about why his disciples did not fast. He said they didn't fast because he was with them. The bridegroom was with them. But he says in Luke 5:35, "The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days." So He says, "After I go back to heaven, then my disciples will fast." Now, why would people fast? Biblically, people would fast for the purpose of prayer. In fasting, you forego eating a meal or multiple meals that you normally would eat that you might devote yourself to prayer in a deeper way than you normally devote yourself to prayer. So when when Jesus said after he would go, his disciples would fast, he certainly is endorsing times of extended, uninterrupted prayer. Certainly, whether we fast or not, we should have extended times of prayer. Now that's background for what Paul says here. He gives one exception in verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Our text teaches that a husband and wife who decide to devote themselves to an extended time of prayer may mutually agree to fast not only from food, but also from sex for the purpose of prayer. Fasting from sex, though, is not more spiritual uh, than not doing so. Nor is fasting from sex required. But Paul says this is the one exception. If the two of you want to do this, and you're agreed upon it, and it's for a limited time, then you may abstain for the purpose of prayer. Does it make you more spiritual? Not doing something that's required, but it is certainly permissible. Now Paul continues in verse 5. He says, But then come together again, So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. None of us is perfect in self-control. All of us are susceptible to temptation. And Paul instructs married couples who for a time fast from sex for the purpose of prayer to be sure to resume sexual intimacy so that they will not be tempted sexually. In saying this, he's elaborating on the teaching that he gave in verse 2. When he said, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each one is to have their own spouse. He's elaborating upon that here. So with only one exception, the instruction in verse 5 is, Do not deprive one another in marriage. Sex in marriage is vital. That is the third truth about sex in marriage. And it goes hand in hand with the first and second truths that it is a protection and that it is about giving now let's briefly connect all of this with the big picture of christian living turn over in 1st corinthians to chapter 10 verse 31 1st corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 Paul's been speaking about issues of eating and drinking. And he says in verse 31, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Married couples are to have sex to the glory of God. Now, if you look to sex to satisfy you and make you happy, it will leave you unsatisfied and unhappy. The lie that the world swallows is that sex will satisfy and give happiness. But what does Solomon tell us in Ecclesiastes that he found? Turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes is just before Song of Solomon. It's after Proverbs Ecclesiastes chapter 2. What did Solomon find? Chapter 2, verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was what? Vanity. What does the word vanity mean? It means emptiness. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is what you will end up with when you seek satisfaction and pleasure in the things of the earth as an end. You will find they are vain, you'll find they're empty, you'll find that them in themselves will not satisfy them and themselves will not make you happy. Solomon hauled all these concubines. He said it's all vain. It's chasing after the wind. What Paul teaches in the book of Ecclesiastes is that we are to enjoy the blessings God has given as gifts from Him. That we are to enjoy His gifts with an eye to Him. That's the path of joy. The path of joy is not making a created thing an end. It will, sa- it will dissatisfy. Created things cannot satisfy, but only God can, can provide. The, the, cannot, I'm sorry, created things cannot provide the satisfaction that only God Himself can provide. We, the path of joy is enjoying the blessings that God has given us as gifts from Him. Enjoying His gifts with an eye to him. Because only God can satisfy the soul. Yes. There is much joy and satisfaction to be found in doing everything consciously to the glory of God. That's what we were instructed in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the satisfying life. That's the joyful life. That's the happy life. Doing all to the glory of God. Husbands and wives, when you have sexual intimacy with your spouse, do so with thankfulness in your heart to God. We read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, uh, after Paul spoke against those who forbid marriage, he said, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So we eat and we drink with Thanksgiving. And husbands and wives are to have sex with thanksgiving to God. If you feel like you need some help in your sexual intimacy, there is a Christian book that I recommend. It's written by a Christian medical doctor, Ed Wheat, Wheat, and his wife Gay Wheat. And the title is intended for pleasure. I put that on the outline. This morning, if you are single, I want to exhort you to live... In absolute purity. If you are single, I want to exhort you this morning to live in absolute purity. Fire is a great blessing when it stays in the fireplace, but extremely destructive outside the fireplace. And sex is the same way. A great blessing when it stays in the place for which God designed it, but extremely destructive outside that place. Proverbs 5 and 7 warn of the destructiveness of sex outside marriage. It says the forbidden woman is like a, a, a trap sent, set by a hunter who is out to destroy you. It says that the, 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 the path of, of following after the forbidden woman is a path that leads to death. Proverbs 5 and 7 give strong warnings of the destructiveness of sex outside marriage. It's a wonderful blessing from God in its rightful place, but outside of that rightful, rightful place, it is destructive. You may not experience that destructiveness immediately, but over time, it will destroy. I exhort you, live in absolute purity unto the glory of God. If you are in a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiancé, understand that the question that you should ask is not, how far is too far? The exact question is asking, how close can I get to sin? The right question is, how holy can I be in this relationship? How holy can we be in our interactions with one Another. Not how far is too far, how holy can we be as we seek to treat each other as brother and sister in Christ. Amen. Now if you are not a Christian, you may be very surprised by this sermon. Learn from this passage that we have studied that everything in life matters to God. No part of life is to be lived apart from God or hidden from Him. Our text teaches that Christian husbands and wives are to have sex to the glory of God. We also looked at 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It matters to God what you do with your spouse. It matters to God what you do with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend, with your fiancé. It matters to God what you do at work. It matters to God what you do at home. It matters to God what you do with your time. It matters to God what you do with your money. It matters to God what you do in public and what you do in private. It matters to God what you do with your body and what you do with your mind. It matters to God what you do when you work and when you rest. It matters to God that in all things you would live according to His design, His commandments, and His will. We read in Acts 17 verse 28, In Him we live and move and have our being. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verses 13 through 14, the conclusion of the book say this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The end of the matter is fear God. Do what's pleasing to Him. The Bible teaches that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us have broken God's law Not just in one way or two ways or a few ways, but in many ways. That we are sinners by nature and sinners by action as well. That sin has pervaded our lives. And that we need a Savior from sin. And there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God. There's nothing that you can do to make up for sins in your past. There's nothing that you can do to 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 make yourself pleasing to God. There's no amount of good deeds that you can do to accomplish that. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are shown by the law to be sinners in need of salvation. and God has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. We can never free ourselves from God's condemnation. We can never free ourselves from His judgment. Uh, We could never work our way into a right relationship with Him. But what we cannot do for ourselves, God has done for us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent His very own Son, His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. Who became man, who experienced all the temptations that we do, yet resisted every single one perfectly. He only did the will of the Father. He lived an absolutely holy and righteous life before the Father in the midst of a tempting and sinful world. He obeyed the law of God perfectly, down to the, to the most minute of details. And then he offered himself upon the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. And Jesus died in the place of sinners there upon the cross. He drank the cup of the wrath of God the night before in the Garden of Eden. I'm sorry, that the Garden of Gethsemane. He contemplated that cup. He contemplated the suffering that he would undergo as he would atone for sin. And he said, Father, if there be any way, take this cup away from me. May I not have to drink the cup of your wrath. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And he submitted to the will of the Father. And he drank that cup. He drank it down to the dregs. He drank that cup completely. So he said, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. And the temple... Curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. God tore that curtain in two. Showing what Christ had accomplished in His death. He accomplished reconciliation. He He reconciled sinful man to holy God. And holy God to sinful man. He opened the way to God. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. And He opened that way through His death upon the cross. Where he bore our sin, he bore our guilt, he paid for it in full. His body was buried. On the third day, he was raised. He was raised in victory. The angel said, He's he's not here. He's gone ahead to Galilee. Go go, go see him, just as he he, he told you to do. He showed himself alive to over 500 of his disciples over the course of 40 days. Then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Or where, where He sits today as King of kings and Lord of lords. And He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And if you are not found in Christ now, then you will suffer what you deserve for your sins in eternity. is God's eternal judgment and wrath. But today is the day of salvation. So come to Jesus Christ today. That you might live. I want to close by looking at John chapter 7. Turn with me to John 7. John chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone spiritually thirsts, recognizing your sin... Recognizing that you, are, uh, that you are alienated from God by your sin, and you desire the eternal life that God sent Christ to provide. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me, no matter what your past has been, no matter what sins you have committed, whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in Christ receives the Holy Spirit yes. and receives through the Holy Spirit eternal life. Christ through the Holy Spirit satisfies that thirsty soul. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Sex will not quench your thirst. Sin will not quench your thirst. No created thing, no person, no matter how ideal they may seem to be, no person of your dreams will satisfy your thirst. No one will satisfy but Christ alone. And He will satisfy completely as He gives you His Spirit to dwell within you. And through the Spirit, He gives you eternal life. Jesus said in John 17, eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. He's talking about knowing personally, personal relationship. Eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. When you believe in Christ, God gives you His Spirit. The Spirit of God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. He makes you a new creation. The one who believes in Christ is justified by God's grace, declared righteous by God, based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. The Holy Spirit brings you into perfect relationship with the Son and with the Father. We were created for a relationship. And there are earthly relationships that are blessings that we thank the Lord for. But human relationships are temporary. God created us for an eternal relationship. He created us for a relationship with the Eternal One. And apart from Christ, there is a hole in your heart that cannot be satisfied by anything except for God Himself. As God gives you His Spirit, and you are united to Christ, true satisfaction, true life is found in relationship with God through His Son, with the Holy Spirit dwelling within. So the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage between a husband and a wife is not an end in itself. It's a picture. It's a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. An everlasting relationship. And so you might get married, you might not get married. You, you might enter in a marriage and think that it's going to be bliss and then it turns out to be terrible. You are created for something much better than any human marriage could possibly be. An eternal relationship with the eternal one. With the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Your creator and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ who became one of us who is man, who knows the things that we go through and has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. We were created for glory. And so don't, as we study this passage, get to thinking sex is the whole thing. It's so small in comparison to the big picture. Keep things in perspective. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for sending us Christ, Your beloved Son. Thank You that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank You that You 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 reconciled us to Yourself at the cross. We thank You that You give to the one who believes in Your Son, You give eternal life. You give that everlasting relationship with You and with the Son, You give the Spirit to indwell. Oh Lord, we are the recipients of such grace. Such amazing love. I pray for husbands and wives. Enable them to reflect this love towards one another. I pray for singles, Lord. I pray that you would enable them to be pure. To be holy before you. To be pure for the sake of your glory. To be pure as worship to you give them your grace to be self-controlled to live holy lives before you give all of us that grace as all of us need that and lord pray for any who may be struggling with contentment thinking that marriage will solve that relationship will solve that lord, i pray for them enable them to find contentment in you Contentment in, in, in knowing you and the perfect relationship that you've given us with yourself that will only get better as time goes on. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.